Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NabTrade's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. At the moment on NabTrade, we're really seeing interesting behaviour from investors. Increasing levels of cash, less buying, more selling, Markets are back to or exceeding their highs, and it's clear even with incredibly accommodative fiscal and monetary policy, COVID is weighing heavily on global economies, and our investors are really clearly a bit nervous about it. So the big concern for many is the possibility that inflation will rear its ugly head, and that leads to poorer outlooks for share markets in the years to come. But a lot of people, there's a lot of talk about inflation. It's out there. It seems to be dominating headlines somewhat. And yet for many investors who've never seen it before, there'd be lots of young people who've never seen inflation in real life. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Doyle from Fidelity to talk about inflation, what it is, whether we're likely to see it, how much of it we're likely to see, and what sort of impact it would have on your portfolio if it really does start to rise. Anthony is a global cross-asset specialist and has been on the podcast before. He does a sensational job of talking us through many complex and challenging topics. Anthony, thanks so much for joining me. Jeez, Gemma, thanks. <laughs> it's, uh, so Anthony and I both are in lockdown at the moment with our small children, so we're both going to make apologies in advance in case there's any interruptions, but uh, hopefully we're safe. I wouldn't, wouldn't count on it, but uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Okay, so we might start with the basics because most Australians who are under retirement age don't really have much real experience of inflation in consumer prices, although asset price inflation is something that's very familiar with people. Anyone who studied economics would have heard about extraordinary levels of inflation in the 1970s, but it's it's a long time since that. So talk us through what's inflation, how's it measured, why does it matter? Yeah, so most simplistically... Inflation is a way that statisticians measure um, changes in the level of prices for goods and services that the average Australian household buys. That's at its most simplistic type of description. In reality, it's a heavily manipulated statistical measure with lots of inputs and variables. Um, And the reason that it's so important is because it's a it's a general measure of our standards of living. So if inflation is rising very materially and wages aren't keeping up with inflation, then actually our standards of living are deteriorating and going backwards. Um, it's very important when you're investing, when you're considering what returns you're experiencing, And we often talk about nominal returns, which is the actual price return or total return that you experience investing in an asset versus real returns. So it's those nominal returns discounted for the level of inflation that you experience. So an extremely important measure uh, with even more importance, given the fact that central banks, one of their main goals of setting interest rates and setting monetary policy is to Uh, manage price stability. And indeed, for the Reserve Bank of Australia, they have an inflation target of between two and 3%. So, I mean, it is, as I said, a statistical measure, which measures the overall level of um, prices of goods and services for an average Australian household, but it's not a cost of living index. So everyone's cost of living will be different, but it's our best guess of what prices are doing in the Australian economy. That's a really interesting description at the end, that point about a cost of living index, because I think many people feel their expenses are going up very aggressively. Sometimes you get this feeling that prices or the costs of things are blowing out and it's affecting you personally. And yet we know that inflation, as it's measured, has been incredibly low for frankly, most of my working life. I don't ever remember inflation being an issue in my working life. So can you talk us through what's been happening with inflation over the last couple of decades? I mean, most of us know intuitively that the price of a lot of goods, TVs, computers, the stuff we use every day has actually been falling, falling quite a lot 
while the quality of those goods has been just getting better and better and better. I mean, I remember a guy who bought this massive flat screen TV, let's say 20 years ago, and it was $5,000. If you spent $5,000 on a television now, you would be getting something really close to the top of the range and it would have been, you know, infinitely better than what this guy bought. So that sort of stuff, you know, you can buy great TV for $1,000 now. The cost of other things, health insurance, putting a roof over your head, that sort of thing, it feels like it's going up and up and up. So can you talk to us about what what that means and how that's been happening? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, you know, the consumer price index, um, it's not a cost of living index. Uh, so what the Australian Bureau of Statistics will do, they actually measure or they, they measure uh, and follow around about 100,000 prices of individual items within Australia and they measure how they're moving every month. Um, and this comes out, actually, the, the measure of CPI comes out on a quarterly basis. But the, um, the, the index is weighted towards certain categories and it's weighted dependent upon the average Australian household, how much they spend on a particular category. So the highest category weight within the index is housing which is 23%. Then it's food and non-alcoholic beverages at 16% and recreation and culture, which is really services at around 13%. And at the lower end of the scale, um, you know, the TVs, et cetera, they make up around 2% of the index. Clothing and footwear make up around 3% of the index and education makes up around 4% of the index. So as you, you, you know, you're quite right in saying that when you delve into the... Uh, things that Australian households will spend money on month in, month out, you know, what we classify as needs, they've materially outpaced the official inflation rate as measured by CPI. So if you look um, since 2008, the categories of CPI that have risen the most, you know, excluding tobacco, um, we're looking at electricity has gone up 98%. Medical and hospital services has gone up 89%. Gas and household fuels up 81%. And secondary education school fees up 85%. So to put that into context, wages over that period of time have grown by 35%. And the official CPI has grown by 26%. On the other end of the scale, you know, the stuff that we buy, like consumer durables or um, discretionary items, you know, things I would classify as wants, like the TVs, like the mobile phones, like the new cars, um, audio, visual and computing equipment has actually declined in price by 71%. Games, toys and hobbies has declined by 20% and clothing and footwear has declined by 5%. Now, what the statistician does, uh, it's not to say that, say, mobile phones are now 70% cheaper than they were in 2008 but they quality adjust many of these components of inflation. Um, so they are looking at uh, a new motor car or a new, a new mobile phone and they'll say, well, the camera you've got in your iPhone today is much better than the Nokia, um, you know, in 2008 or the Blackberry in 2008. So we're going to uh, assume a level of, or adjust that price, um, which leads to a decline, you know, according to the CPI. But we all know that actually, you know, computers and, and mobile phones, they're not getting much cheaper, but they're getting far better in terms of the money you buy. The other thing we need to be aware of is shrinkflation, where uh, a company will keep the, the price of the good the same, but they'll give you less. Um, so we've seen, you know, shrinking Mars bars and maybe you buy a packet of sausages, it used to have six in it, but now it has five in it. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics will also adjust for that and they, they will keep a, a close eye that um, you're not seeing uh, inflation in that sense where you're getting actually less for your money, even though the price of the item might not have changed. So this is something that investors and Australians, you know, they have to bear in mind that when the Reserve Bank of Australia is targeting between two and 3% inflation, as measured by the CPI, it's not their own cost of living. Because as I said, every household in Australia has a different cost of living. You know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Gemma, I've got young kids here, um, you know, twins. So you know, for the last couple of years, I was spending a lot of money on nappies, 
Whereas, you know, people with teenagers, they, they wouldn't be spending that equivalent amount, you know, it doesn't exist in their, in their spending. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, the largest component of consumer price inflation is housing. And one of the biggest contributors or biggest weights within that measure is the costs of building a new home. So this doesn't include the land. Um, housing prices um, in general are excluded from the CPI, but the cost of building a new home is around 7% of our consumer price index. But how often do you build a new home? I mean, I never have, um, and I'm sure a lot of people haven't as well. So the thing to bear in mind for most Australians is, you know, develop your own cost of living and you can measure, you know, determine um, the weights within your own cost of living in terms of your own household expenditures, what you often spend money on. And there are apps that will help you do that. Even some of the the banks, you know, they'll do that for you looking at, um, your savings account, um, which is quite handy. And then you can then um, determine what what you're spending your money on and, and how to potentially invest appropriately to, to try and offset the rising costs of inflation for your own um, household costs. Well, that's also interesting, your, uh, your shrinkfl- shrinkflation example. Uh, I remember there was massive scandal because they took out one Tim Tam from the packet. 13 and then it became 12 or 14 became I don't eat Tim Tabs but um, it was a big deal when it happens a very big deal uh I think also your point about building a house super interesting it's it's a rare experience for most people and it's such a significant chunk when it happens one thing that I find fascinating is certainly for retirees for example you know, the basket of goods and services they pay for is so different to someone who's younger and, you know, they have no material housing costs. So when that's 23% of the CPI, they're not affected by a lot of the things in there, but then the other things like electricity and so on make a larger component for them because of what they're spending. Yeah, yeah. Given that central banks, so the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, their primary target, can I say primary target? You'll correct me if I'm wrong, is targeting inflation. And certainly when I was studying, it was about keeping inflation low. The job was to keep it low. And then given that inflation rates have been so low for so long, suddenly the lower band of that 2 to 3% you're talking about has become an issue. And suddenly it's about driving it up a bit. We want to see some kind of inflation uh, because there are some assumptions to be made about wages. Can you talk to us about the role of central banks and the relationship between interest rates, which is the tool that central banks use, and inflation? I think, again, for so many young people, interest rates have been really low and have been falling for well over 10 years now. So for many people, they have no experience of high interest rates and what they might mean, and also their role in targeting inflation, which has also been really low and not something that a lot of people have had to worry about, certainly as it's been measured. Yeah, I mean, so the the current monetary policy regime or how central banks um, use monetary policy to bring about the best outcomes for their economy really stems from the experience of the 1970s um, of the global economy when we had a supply side shock to the oil price um, and inflation rates were in Australia in the double digits um, for large parts of the 1970s. Um, and this was a, a global phenomenon, you know, including the US, um, but we experienced it here as well. So over the last 50 years, um, what central banks target has shifted and how they set interest rates has moved. And what we saw in 1979 in the US was um, a guy called um, Paul Volcker was appointed as chair chairman of the uh, US Federal Reserve. And he came in and said, right, I'm going to get rid of all this inflation. And he jacked interest rates up to sort of the, the mid-teens. Uh, and this is, you know, if you talk to baby boomers today, they'll often say, you know, when I got my first mortgage, it was 17% interest rate, et cetera. And, you know, to, to think that you get fixed rates now for, for less than 2%, you know, uh, amazes them. But basically, Paul Volcker, in, do, in ramping up or in driving interest rates higher, uh, as set by the US Central Bank, Um, it plunged the US into a recession. Um, But what it did do was actually set up this period of growth that we've experienced 
for, for really 30 years, um, 30, 35 years. Um, and it's been called the nice period. So it was a, a period where we had a, a constantly expanding economy uh, and very low inflation. So basically what happened was the, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand in 1991 said the way that monetary policy should be used and interest rates should be set is to target um, prices or to target inflation. So the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was first to adopt it in 1991. Subsequently, the Treasurer of Australia um, will, t- will mandate what the RBA should target um, and they agree with that. Uh, they agree to that on a periodic basis. And uh, obviously, Josh Frydenberg has mandated that um, the Reserve Bank of Australia targets between 2 to 3% CPI inflation. Now, the RBA says, well, we'll target inflation between 2 and 3%. But often what you find is that uh, food and energy prices can be very volatile. So we think that we can get a good handle on what inflation is doing by constructing a couple of other measures of inflation, you know, just to get a little bit more technical. So they do a trimmed mean where they uh, take out, strip out the most volatile items in the CPI um, to get an underlying rate. They look at uh, core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices. And they also look at a very a much more statistically technical measure, a weighted median. So what is the, the 50th percentile of the CPI how has that been moving over the course of the last quarter and the last year? So there's a range of different inflationary measures that the RBA will use in order to see whether it's doing a good job of meeting its inflation target of between 2 and 3%. And unfortunately, the RBA has done quite a poor job since 2014 in that it's undershot the inflation target for a long period of time. Now, um, or has been just you know touching the bottom of its inflation target of around two two to three percent, particularly more currently. I mean, the current um, the most recent update we had on inflation for um, the CPI was one point one percent. So obviously very low for the set for the first quarter of uh, twenty twenty one. But we all know the extraordinary uh, period that we're living through at the moment. So this is the main. Thing that uh, central banks have been tasked with internationally. They're inflation targeters. Um, they have a price stability in mind. They don't want rampant inflation. They don't want deflation, but they think that uh, around about that 2 to 3% level is most appropriate to achieve the most optimal outcomes for the uh, Australian people and the Australian economy. Now, the big, the big shift that we're seeing internationally is that central banks, um, particularly the Reserve Bank of Australia, has adopted full employment. And when we talk about full employment, it means driving the unemployment low, unemployment rate as low as it can go um, in order to generate higher wages um, to, to generate higher inflationary numbers. Because as you say, Gemma, they've undershot their target. And this has been a big problem internationally. You know, it's not just been Australia, but the UK, Europe, Japan, the US have undershot their targets for a long period of time. And we've seen this shift in the pandemic where the European Central Bank, um, the Bank of England, the US Federal Reserve, the Reserve Bank of Australia are now putting much more focus on driving unemployment lower to generate higher wages and and hoping that that will enable them to meet their targets because they've done uh, a poor job really since the GFC of meeting those inflation targets. This is a question without notice, so I apologise, but it it might be helpful for people to understand why we talk about it. It's it's perhaps easy to understand the impact of high inflation, like why you would be worried about high inflation. But can you talk to us about why central banks worry about really high inflation or really low inflation? Like what is it that bothers them? What does it do to the economy and people's behaviour? Yeah, so... Well, first, the thing that central banks fear the most is deflation. That's ultimately the worst outcome that could eventuate. They're petrified of that. And all the, all the action that you've seen on the monetary policy side has been to avoid a deflationary scenario. And the reason they're so scared is that um, obviously with debt loads being as high as they are, particularly in Australia where we have the second highest level of household 
debt to GDP in the world behind Switzerland. If you're seeing that for an economy like Australia's where 60% of the economy is driven by consumption and we have very high debt loads in the private sector um, and also the household sector, in a deflationary environment, what you see is, um, you know, at the most micro level, people start to put off purchases of items and services because they think that it's going to be cheaper down the line. So if you're going to buy a car and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to buy a car, but you know, car prices are falling, well, I'm going to put off purchasing that car until um, you start to see prices pick up again. Equivalently, um, you know, for all items, um, and then you just see the economy grind to a halt. If people stop purchasing um, consumer goods and services, you know, businesses stop generating revenue, stop generating incomes, they have to start letting people off and unemployment starts to rise and you get into this deflationary spiral, recessionary type of spiral. So they're petrified of deflation, which is why they've been dropping interest rates and undertaking actions like quantitative easing. Now, moderate inflation, they, they don't want zero inflation, but they think moderate inflation of that 2 to 3% range is the most appropriate. And so that's obviously what they've been targeting um, since the, the mid to early 90s. Uh, but they also don't want inflation to be too high because that would debase the value of money. Um, and then you start to, you know, the, the most interesting example is often the hyperinflation that you see in countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe, where people are often, you know, using, uh, there's, a, there's a famous example in Germany, uh, the Weimar Republic, where there's a guy throwing um, German currency into a fire to keep warm. Um, so obviously hyperinflation is something where you go down to the market um, and you think you're going to go buy a pint of milk and it's doubled in price on you or tripled in price on you. So this is why central banks internationally, they think they can deal with high inflation by raising interest rates or withdrawing monetary stimulus, but they're petrified of deflation, which is why they're doing the things that they've done. And in extremis, a guy like Ben Bernanke, who was the Fed chair during the GFC, now, he said, ultimately, we could do helicopter drops of money, which is, um, you know, giving people money, giving people currency to go out and spend. And this is why it's so interesting that we're at the point where we are at today, because there's a huge debate in markets over whether the current inflation that we're seeing is transitory, meaning that it's very short term, or whether it's going to be more structural in nature because of the huge amounts of fiscal stimulus that have accompanied the monetary stimulus um, as a response to the COVID recession, particularly in the US, where you're seeing the US economy, you know, 40% of GDP in fiscal stimulus to support the US economy, stimulus checks being sent out. Um, you're seeing minimum wage increases as well in the US. And whether so the inflation that we're seeing in the US, you know, north of 5%, um, whether that will be sustained or transitory is a big question for markets. Um, and the reason that's so important is because will the US Federal Reserve have to respond by, by raising interest rates? Um, so that's the huge debate going on. And it's similar for, for here in Australia, whether uh, if inflation did start to materially pick up and that started to become entrenched in expectations and people started to ask for wage increases to compensate for higher inflation, um, and whether that started to enforce a wage price spiral, would the RBA be forced to act to raise interest rates? And that would have obviously have big implications for the Australian government bond market, for Australian equities, um, and generally Australian assets, um, you know, e even flowing through into the Aussie dollar, for example. So, you know, that's the backdrop of why central banks, their, their um, main goal is price stability and inflation, that 2 to 3% range. Um, and they start to get a little bit more nervous if uh, inflation starts to become uh, much higher or lower than that, than that range that they've been uh, mandated with. You're a little bit ahead of me, but that's such a good explanation. So if we talk now about the concerns being mooted now about higher inflation, I mean, everyone's been pretty relaxed about inflation for quite some time because the numbers have been so benign and now people are starting to worry and there's some clear supply pressures you know iron ore prices are insane uh, lumber prices are insane and there are supply-based issues for that 
you know, it's, it's very difficult to bring new iron ore supply online when you lose a dam, uh, which then shuts off supply and lumber has been affected by a number of different things. It's, but there's this real concern about inflation right across all sorts of different prices, not specifically just a couple of commodities. So can you talk to me about what higher inflation, so let's say we do see real prints of higher inflation, and you're going to talk to me about what happened last night too, right? Um, what higher inflation means for asset prices, why markets are so concerned, and whether or not you guys are concerned about it. Yeah, I think anyone that tells you they know how the inflation outlook is going to develop over the next 12 to 18 months is probably speculating because this is a a once in a lifetime pandemic where we've seen actions by governments uh, in order to stop the spread of the pandemic um, have big implications for um, real economies and everywhere is different in terms of their experience that they're having. So, the rise in inflationary pressures that we're seeing at the moment, um, you know, whether you're looking at the US or, or in other nations, has really been driven by spending on, on goods. In particular, um, in the US, what we've seen is a large amount of, of spending and, and big price increases for used cars. So people are going, well, why are used cars um, appreciating in value? It's because there's supply constraints for new cars. Um, so we're seeing that there's there's shortages in semiconductors, so they can't get the new cars produced um, quickly enough to meet the demand from people that have been forced to stay home, that they haven't been able to travel to the same degree that they once did, and they think, oh, I'd like a new car. So instead, they're, they're spending their, their money on, on used cars, for example, and so we're seeing big price increases for used cars. And this reflects um, the integration of the global supply chain you know, just-in-time production, where you have many countries involved in the development of a particular item. So, you know, the semiconductors might come from from Taiwan, for example, and the final assembly might occur in the United States, um, or the raw materials come from a mine in Australia. Um, so this is the, the global supply chain, in effect, um, is still damaged because of COVID-19. We're not seeing supply um, is not fully on stream by no stretch of the stretch of the imagination, but demand has quickly recovered, particularly in places like the US or, or places where they've had great success in reopening and um, the vaccine rollout. So demand has quickly recovered. People are spending on goods. Um, you've seen that in the Australian uh, economy as well, particularly if you look at the, the winners of covid in the Australian um, equity market, you know, you're talking about the JB Hi-Fi's and Harvey Normans, where people have gone to spend on, on goods. Now, if you want to see a more sustaining sort of inflationary profile, you would expect that spending on services would start to increase as well. So a, a shift from, say, airfares and used cars in the United States to one where more services um, are starting to appreciate in value as well. So at the moment, central banks are saying that don't worry, we know that commodity prices are rising, we know that inflation is rising, but we expect that as we return to normal, supply will come back on stream for many of these types of um, commodities and markets, and uh, those supply pressures will dissipate, and we're going to call this inflation as transitory. We're going to keep interest rates low. You can relax. And so everyone's you know, pretty, pretty happy about that because low interest rates mean that you can continue to service your debt obligations and the cost of capital isn't rising on you. But there's this other argument, um, you know, the other half of the market, you know, it's really finally split at the moment saying, well, central banks, you're wrong. You know, this is far more sticky, this inflation than you think, because companies are finding it harder to get workers. They're going to have to start paying higher for wages. Those higher wages will be passed on via higher consumer prices for for goods and services that uh, a country is consuming. And actually, you're going to have to hike interest rates before you think you do. Um, And this is really interesting in Australia because the RBA is saying, we don't think we're going to have to hike interest rates until 2024. Whereas market economists are saying, um, you know, some market economists are saying we're going to see interest rates hikes in um, the end of 2022. So um, it's it's interesting because you don't normally see this level of debate. You're normally the consensus crowds around one particular central scenario. Um, and what you're seeing is volatility in markets as a result, whether it be bond markets or equity markets. 
And if you do obviously um, have a view that the consensus will come round to, will you stand to potentially, you know, drive sustainable and, and good returns from that view, um, provided you're correct, obviously. So at this point in time, it's still really uncertain, the outlook. Um, many suggest that we've seen the peak of inflationary pressures because of base effects where we were in a year ago relative to where we are today. Um, and so what we're doing at Fidelity is obviously keeping a very close eye. So we've got you know, a lot of analysts that are talking to companies and reflecting back to us that some of these supply constraints are real that companies, you know, we, we talked to one big minor, um, you know, household name more recently saying that they can't find the, the necessary workers um, to drive the big trucks that, you know, transport the commodities around that they're digging up out of mines in WA. And wh why can't they find workers? Well, firstly, you obviously have restraints on borders. Um, so you see a lot of fly-in, fly-out workers from the East Coast don't want to go to WA in case they can't get back again. And equivalently, a lot of workers came from New Zealand. Um, so they can't, they can't necessarily get over either with the uncertainty around the pandemic. And also, we've got a construction boom going on as well. So on the East Coast, um, you know, talk to anyone uh, in the housing market on the East Coast, Firstly, house prices are rapidly appreciating, um, but a lot of people are doing renovations on their homes. So you see a lot of fly-in, fly-out workers. They've um, moved into the construction sector on the East Coast where they can work closer to home too. So you're seeing wage pressures grow in that sense. Um, so this is what one thing that we're keeping a very close eye on in terms of getting the anecdotes back from our um, bottom-up analysts um, scattered around the globe, um, obviously in most of the, the major countries. Um, on the second side of things, you know, we're keeping a close on how sticky um, some of these commodity price moves actually are, or will we see um, a eventual fall as a result of supply coming back on stream? Because the main contributor in terms of higher inflation in the short term is higher commodities, and that feeds through via higher food and energy prices. So if I'm an investor... Uh, and I probably hold some of the big uh, the big resources companies that you're talking about, but I also own some big tech names, uh, some very high growth companies, maybe some companies with a lot of debt. What does inflation mean for me if things start looking pretty sticky and it looks like it's taking off? Yeah, I mean, higher interest rates don't really bode well for um, risk markets in general or equivalently the fixed income market. So under a rising inflationary regime in the short term, most asset classes sell off. The most effective hedge against higher inflation on a 12-month view is actually commodities um, and gold, um, gold obviously being commodity. But um, generally the reason that it's a good hedge is because the reason that we have higher inflation is the first place in first place is because commodity prices are rising in particular oil but in the short term what you tend to find is that most asset classes perform poorly in a rising inflationary environment some asset classes that will also do a good job for you are say floating rate notes because um, floating rate notes are linked to to higher interest rates um, so their um, coupons uh, adjust higher periodically with um, interest rates moving higher. The other thing that can do a good job for you are inflation-linked bonds, short-dated inflation-linked bonds, where the coupon and the principal on those bonds are actually linked to, to actual inflation outcomes. So they can act as an inflation hedge too, um, provided you hold those bonds to maturity. So, you know, if you're looking at the mining companies, for example, they should actually work as quite an effective hedge against inflation. Um, because they're benefiting from high commodity prices. The other sort of companies that benefit, think about companies that sell the CPI basket of goods, um, you know, consumer staples, for example. Um, they can perform quite well in a rising inflationary environment because they are actually selling um, the items within the basket of goods. But, you know, the, the growthy names, um, the tech names that... Uh, the long duration type stocks that rely on a low cost of capital, um, they tend to perform poorly, which is why you have had this rotation underlying the index or within the index between growth and value. So, 
you know, the first half of this year really dominated by um, value outperforming growth. And then we had an update from the US Federal Reserve where they said, oh, we're actually a bit more nervous about inflation. We think that we might actually have to raise interest rates a couple of times um, next year. Uh, and you've seen this rotation back towards growth because they think that the Fed's going to make a mistake and they'll have to quickly um, drop interest rates again. So it's really interesting dynamic. But for those investors that are worried about inflation in the short term, you know, um, you, you don't want to be in long duration fixed income assets um, as they tend to perform very poorly um, when interest rates rise as and yields are also rising. REITs tend to perform poorly. Interest rate, interest rate sector... Um, sensitive sectors perform poorly um, that are dependent upon low costs of capital. Um, but generally, you know, you're looking at commodities, gold, um, and select sectors and companies within the ASX 200 to act as a partial hedge. Um, longer run, you know, with a longer run 10, 15, 20 year view, you tend to find that equities actually act as an effective hedge against inflation because economies are growing and uh, often what you find is that the, the share market trends higher over long periods of time. So they can act as an effective hedge against inflation over the medium to long run. Bonds eventually recover from the, the initial losses of a shock to inflation because you're reinvesting in the bond market with higher yields and higher coupons. So you're generating a higher total return. Eventually, commodities suffer because uh, in the commodity world, you're reliant upon uh, increasing price gains. There's no income from commodities. And eventually, you find that they tend to deteriorate. So over the long run, commodities can be quite a poor hedge um, or a non-hedge against inflation. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, um, short-dated short inflation-linked bonds can also act as a, a good hedge for, for wor investors worried about inflation over the medium to long run. That's such a great summary for people, uh, for many people who've never had to think about inflation in any real way in terms of how it affects a portfolio. That's a sensational list of things for people to consider. One comment that has been made, and it's it's been quite heated in some circles, is that because central banks have been so accommodating and so generous, you know, in terms of QE and so on, that while they've kept CPI low, so the actual consumer price inflation, asset price inflation has been insane. And you talked about uh, property prices, for example, on the East Coast and how asset owners, the so people who own assets, have done incredibly well out of a low interest rate environment and those who don't have done really poorly because if you're trying to save in a low interest rate environment, it's very difficult. Do you think that runaway asset prices would be a reason for central banks to bring forward their decisions on raising rates? Or do you think that that horse is bolted and they're just not, they're not going to go there? Yeah. I mean, so this goes, you know, some of the themes that we're talking about today have been entrenched in markets for, you know, decades. So I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question, Gemma, in that we've seen, as you say, you know, financial asset inflation, which actually isn't measured in the CPI. Um, so the CPI is just measuring that basket of goods and services, you know, things that are tangible. Whereas um, financial asset price inflation, such as, you know, established dwelling house prices or the stock market or the bond market, you know, that that's not included in, in inflation. And it's not something that central banks are ta tasked with managing, essentially. Um, up until very recently, I mentioned the Reserve Bank of New Zealand being the, the first central bank to adopt inflation inflation targeting. Well, they've now been mandated with, you know, managing the housing market as well, interestingly, by the New Zealand Labor government. So, you know, obviously they, they've also been experiencing even a stronger house price boom than what we have experienced here. So central banks in terms of the housing market have very much been leaning upon so-called macro prudential measures. So tightening lending standards in order to try and rein in um, rampant house price growth that has developed because of their very own policies in terms of dropping interest rates, mortgage rates subsequent, sub, subsequently falling as well people having um, the ability to borrow more um, and debt servicing costs falling and they're levering up and then subsequently, you know, buying 
an asset that is scarce in that, you know, a dwelling, you know, 10 kilometers close to the CBD, you know, it, there's only so many you can buy, right? So the, the price has been appreciating. And this has started to obviously flow into, into the regions as well, particularly as um, some people are starting to think, well, maybe I can do remote working. So um, I'd rather live, uh, you know, close to the beach than do the commute every day and pay silly money for, for a, a house close to the city. I can get a lot more for my money in one of the regions. But make no bones about it, higher financial asset prices are one way that central banks can stimulate their economy. And they know this. They know that um, higher asset prices, you know, by reducing interest rates and undertaking quantitative easing, that they are going to stimulate asset prices, which will um, generate higher household wealth. Um, and if households are feeling wealthier, hopefully they will go out and spend. Um, and if they go out and spend, well, businesses will do better. They'll employ more people. If more people are being employed and I can't find staff, I have to pay higher wages. And then that leads to higher inflation. So they want higher asset prices. Um, the RBA has acknowledged that the housing market is showing rapid price grain, rapid price gains. They acknowledge that it has distributional impacts, the policies that they're, they're pursuing and that income inequality is likely to rise as those that own assets do well and those that don't own assets, you know, are missing out on the gains that are in the share, in the share market or in the housing market or in the bond market. Um, they acknowledge that, but they think that fiscal policy is a more appropriate approach to pursue in order to manage some of those risks around um, appreciation of those asset classes, as opposed to to what they're doing in terms of trying to generate full employment and and higher inflation. You know that two to three percent range. So you know it's it's not clear that central banks, because of how financialized the world is today, it's not clear that central banks are continuing to pursue those traditional goals of monetary policy of inflation and full employment that indeed the tail might wag the dog now in that any hint that central banks are starting to raise interest rates, the stock market falls, consumers become more worried about a recessionary outlook, they stop spending and that prevents the RBA or the central banks from raising interest rates in the first place. So it becomes a, a doom loop or a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so that's why they want to generate a really, really strong economic response that they can actually move interest rates off the floor of zero where we now find ourselves in and has historically been quite difficult to raise interest rates um, ever since the GFC because of how much leverage there is now whether it be on the government side of the balance sheet, the corporate side or the household side. So the main risk is that you get financial instability building from bubbles of debt and that central banks are actually um, constrained in their ability to address some of those financial bubbles that may build up. But for all intents and purposes today, I think we're just trying to get through the battle that we find ourselves in at the moment. And that may be a, a battle for another day. Um, but but make no bones about it. The central banks, they want higher asset prices. You know, they they want people to to feel wealthier and be wealthier so that they can go out and help them pursue their goals of full employment and um, and inflation between two and three percent. Because remember how fearful they are of deflation. Um, now the the consequences of every everyone levering up and um, and borrowing more is that you're very unlikely to see the interest rates that you once saw, you know, a 5% cash rate or a 6% cash rate, because it doesn't take much today to um, really slow down the economy. So if people are borrowing a lot more and um, mortgage rates rise from two to 3% or two to 4%, that would have a significant slowing effect on the Australian economy. Um, and that's something that the RBA will have to manage very, very closely. But it's been 30 or 40 years of falling interest rates, rising debt, rising leverage, rising asset prices. Um, and this is, you know, probably a question, a big question that I can't answer. But how how that ends um, is going to be an interesting question because what we have seen is that interest rates got to zero. And central banks started buying government bonds, corporate bonds, equities in Japan, you know, corporate rates, um, whether that continues or whether we do actually see some tightening of policy in a traditional sense of higher rates. Um, that's, that's the you know, multi-million dollar question that I can't answer.
Yeah, it's a really tough one, isn't it? I don't, uh, I don't envy them. Uh, in solving problems, there's a whole lot of new ones that have been created, and we have no idea how it's going to end. But it's encouraging that you feel that there's there's a way to go before things change. So, just final question for you then: How do people keep an eye on this without getting carried away by the headlines? Because the headlines are pretty dramatic. You know, it's basically inflation is going to kill your portfolio, uh, which doesn't make anyone feel particularly great. Uh, what are the sort of signals that people should be keeping an eye on without getting sort of drowned by the noise? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I was saying earlier, the the main sort of uh, markets that we're looking at in particular at the headline level are commodity markets. Um, so it looks like you've seen some moderation, you know, even in lumber prices that um, you mentioned earlier, you know, they've fallen back from record highs. Um, you can look at iron ore um, and see as Brazil starts to come online uh, over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, potentially, you know, what does that do to the iron ore price? Um, but commodity prices will be the main determinant of inflation in the short term. Um, additionally, if you see a rotation from goods price inflation to services inflation, that would suggest, you know, so goods, you know, as I said, motor vehicles to say all of a sudden, yeah, haircuts are, are growing, you know, in cost um, or you're noticing things that you're spending on, prices are rapidly appreciating um, potentially after years of being pretty stable, you know, that's something to be very cognizant of and, and keep a close eye on and that's, that's what we're doing as well. But uh, ultimately, the main determinant of what the central bank is going to do is going to be wages growth. So the, the most important number in the Australian economy today, uh, in terms of the economic variables is the unemployment rate, and the underemployment rate. So underemployment measures those people that have a job, but they want to work more. Um, as opposed to the unemployment rate, if the unemployment rate is measuring those people that obviously um, want, want a job um, but can't find one. But in order to be employed, um, according to the statistician, you need to work one hour a week, right? So, you know, that's not great if, you, if you've got rent to pay and utilities to pay and, you know, mobile phone bills and, and things like that. So underemployment is really important to monitor as well and keep an eye on, as that will arguably have a, a greater indicator of whether wage pressures are building in the Australian economy and then whether we actually see those wage pressures um, come through the system. This is, this is something that not only Australia is focused on, but internationally, whether it be Europe, UK, the United States as well. So, I mean, this will take some time, which is why the RBA is saying we don't think these conditions for an interest rate hike will be met until 2024. You know, we're 2021 now. So it will take some time to develop, but in the short term, you're likely to see markets buffeted by thematics um, or, or narratives as one camp wins or starts to win the debate over the other. Um, whether that be the camp that thinks inflation is, is more sticky or the camp that thinks inflation is actually going to be more transitory in nature. And what it does prevent, you know, in the volatility of the outlook is it may prevent, or sorry, it may provide investors with opportunities to allocate to companies in the, in the equity market or allocate to asset classes at cheaper levels, um, at attractive valuations, um, in order to hold for the long term and generate good returns um, from being opportunistic um, and timing appropriately. Now, you know, the best way really in such an uncertain environment, um, and, you know, I, I sometimes think I'm a bit old fashioned in this, but, you know, you know, preaching the benefits of diversification, you know, it's not, it's not cheap. Sorry, it's not, um, it's not, yeah, it is not cheap to, to hold cash for, to wait for these opportunities, particularly when you see that everything is going well, you know, sometimes much more difficult to invest in a bull, bull market than a bear market, because you see the opportunity cost of holding a higher cash balance and, and waiting for an opportunity to get into the market. But, um, you know, rest assured when there's such an uncertain environment like this, the opportunities will present themselves. Um, so if you've done all your homework beforehand, you may be able to, to pick up a bargain or two in the periods of volatility that surround themselves with the narratives of inflation and interest rates at that macro level. 
think you've spoken the magic words, actually, as far as our investors are concerned. Everyone's, uh, as I said, we're starting to see those cash levels rise and uh, a little bit of trimming here and there. And, uh, and now investors love picking up a bargain. You guys at Fidelity, you produce a heap of great content. You've got really high quality speakers and a number of listed products that people might be interested in. If they want to find out more, where should they go? Yeah, so our website is the the best place to look. Uh, that's fidelity.com.au. Um, as you mentioned, we we do a lot of analysis. You know, we've got a lot of teams around the world, and we put a lot of emphasis on communicating our ideas and our views to our clients. Um, so um, we also like a lot of pushback um, because you know a market is two different views, right? So someone saying the outlook for this company is good, and someone saying um, I've had enough of this company. You know, I'm I'm selling out. So um, if you do go onto the the website, please, um, you know, if you if you do value the, the research that we're providing, feel free to provide any um, feedback or views of your own. It'd be really interesting to hear. Um, but fidelity.com.au. Anthony Doyle from Fidelity, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gemma. I should say. I feel like I've learned a lot today and I actually studied economics at university and that's just embarrassing, but it's, it's been highly educational. So thank you. Hey, no problem. Yeah. I mean, I've focused on inflation for yeah a large part of my career. So um, yeah, in London, I was tasked with building bond funds that were hedges against inflation. So yeah, I've done a lot of work on this stuff. It's, uh, it's amazing how it's changed. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, like Anthony, we love hearing from you. We've received some awesome feedback. We love getting your questions and suggestions for future topics. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.